2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Old friends, David Diggs and Rafael Casal, have been making things together for years poetry, music, funny YouTube clips, and in 2018, a movie, Blind Spotting, that took the measure of police violence and gentrification in Oakland. Along the way, Diggs starred in Hamilton, and both of them had to move away from the Bay Area. Now they're back with a new TV show set in the Blind Spotting universe that's imaginative and conflicted, surreal and funny. Not unlike Oakland itself. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. David Diggs and Rafael Casal's 2018 film, Blind Spotting, centered on themes at the core of Oakland where it was set race and friendship, police violence, and gentrification. They've now expanded Blindspotting into a TV series on the Stars Network, and the focus is broader. While tackling the prison system, Blindspotting's also a wild love letter to the Bay Area, all its contradictions and complexities, grounded in the stories of the community's women and the Thizzle Dance, of course.
3: Hello, everybody. Hi.
4: I'd like to introduce you to the fizzle Dance. Thizzle Dance? Fizzle Dance, I said. Can I do the Thizzle Dance?
2: And I'd like to introduce you to David Diggs and Rafael Casal here to talk about their new TV show, Blind Spotting. Welcome to hey. Forum. <laughs> What's up? Um, I'm so excited to have you here. I wanted to have you as my very first show. Um, but here we are. We're only a few shows in. Um, and I, I mean this in the most sincere and complimentary, complimentary way. This is actually a pretty weird and beautiful television show. And with all <laughs> pieces of art like that, I, I have to ask, how did, how did this get made?
3: <laughs> Solid question. Um, we, uh, we were actually approached by Lionsgate after the film was out uh who said um what do you think is there is there maybe a, a tv show adaptation of this and we were like no nah, there's definitely not uh <laughs> it took us uh, 10 years to make that movie and we have other things to do with our lives and uh, and we also told the story uh, of con and miles that was um we thought necessary to tell
2: for people who um, don't know that story tell fill us in on that story
3: yeah, uh, well, Blindspotting the Film is about uh, two best friends growing up in Oakland. One, Colin, um, is on the last few days of his uh, his probation for a, a violent crime that he committed and um, living in a halfway home. On, on his way home, one night he witnesses the police shooting of an unarmed Black man. And the story is about the next few days of their lives together um, and how that event um uh starts to challenge their friendship the friendship between uh, a black man and a white man who um who never had to come to terms with certain things before because uh they weren't as aware of the fear surrounding them and it's also about a rapidly gentrifying oakland um that adds to the sort of pressure cooker of of Colin's fears so uh, that's what that film is about and um when given the opportunity to to make a tv show we realized that uh while while making that film the one of the things we really always wanted more of was the character ashley played by Jasmine Sibis Jones um we felt that she was representative of so many women that we grew up around um and the character that Jasmine created was so compelling and we just didn't have enough space in a 90 minute film to get into anything really that was outside of colin's perspective in order to pull off the trick of that film which is to have uh to have everybody relate to and root for a convicted felon pointing a gun at a police officer right (laughs) like that was um it was a tricky thing to pull off and we realized
2: we really had to be inside colin's head to pull it off um and Rafael, what did the show end up being like how does the show open where are we a year in time ahead of the movie
5: or are we right after it ends we're we're coming in about six months after the events of the movie, and um, and we're dropping into a a, a really sort of a, a whiplash complicated scene um, where the first thing you're seeing is someone is someone is being arrested. It's, it's miles from from the film, and um, and Jasmine Cephas Jones character Ashley is sort of coming home and. Um, and witnessing this happening in, in real time. And I think it kind of gives the audience a bit of whiplash and, and wondering what exactly they're seeing. Um, and, uh, and the consequences of that arrest sort of play out for the rest of the first season.
2: Yeah. And let's, let's hear, um, Jasmine Sevis Jones, um, in the first cut we've got of the sentencing, which kind of you know triggers the rest of the action of the show.
6: Everyone is about to go into shock and I have to try to not bracing against the clock knowing full well this crooked system is still crooked to the poor and brown and he got half that down being from our block.
0: This is on for sentencing. Now we wait
6: for the number his number, the countdown the time I am bound around the hope we hound, the sliver of the light in the tunnel of the town and repeat and repeatedly ask until found when will he be out, be out, will he be out, be out, be out
0: You will serve a period of 58 months in San Quentin State Penitentiary Followed by one year
2: of house arrest probation. Five years. So Miles gets sent away for five years. I think there's a couple different things I want to talk to you about, about this clip. Um, Obviously, if you haven't seen the show, that doesn't sound like a lot of television. (laughs) Um, So David Diggs, like, you know, I know you guys came up in the spoken word scene. Did you think about just sort of going like, all right, no spoken word in this TV. We've been doing that for a long time. We're not going to do it. Why did you want to keep it in? Well,
3: it's one of the things about in trying to make a show that accurately represents the Bay Area, there is something inherently beautiful about the way that we speak there. And to me, the only way to get people to really hear it when you're not from where is there is to heighten the language. I actually think it's a particularly Bay Area thing to really point at uh this this is this is how we sound to ourselves in our heads it's beautiful um and so that that to me is why verse is is necessary to tell this particular bay area story um but it's also it's also a useful tool actually particularly in a in 30 minutes of television the the thing we learned growing up writing uh short poems is that when you need to get a lot of information and emotion into something very quickly you use verse metaphor is actually a really useful tool Um, And so is rhyme. And so is meter. It trains people's ears to hear the parts of the sentence that are important. And so it actually is really helpful when we have to cover a lot of ground, particularly emotional ground very quickly.
2: Yeah. You do something else to cover emotional ground, too, which is like really, really interesting. And I'm not sure uh, I've ever seen it before, which is you have these choreographed dancers who act as kind of this silent Greek chorus. Can you tell me a little bit more about that choreography? Oh, yeah. Uh- <laughs> you can do it. Raphael can do it. If yeah. you want.
5: This man just started cutting the grass in front of my house. Gosh, <laughs> gotcha. got gotcha. me and Raphael are on Zoom
3: looking at each other. Uh, yeah, the, the dancers um, are, for us, a representation of when the when people outside of prison are feeling the effects of the prison industrial complex. So that's that's sort of the, the loose rule as to when you see the dancers, but you're right that it um, allows it to be an extension of sort of emotional trauma and celebration. Um, and we tasked our choreographers, Lil Buck and John Boogs, with infusing the choreography, who are incredible and, and really great with narrative, and that's why we wanted them. Um, to infuse the choreography with as many touchstones of specifically Bay Area dance as possible. Um, And so the style of, of dance that John does is actually born out of the bay area and out of Oakland specifically and so that was that was useful for them we also worked with the Turf fiends a lot um and a bunch of other local bay area dancers to really infuse cuz there's a, a style of movement mm-hmm. there so again for me like so much of this the elements of storytelling go back to how do we tell uh, a uniquely bay area story even even in the visual representation
2: of it yeah rafael i, I know you're the showrunner so i assume you had to deal with more of the logistics like on the set like figuring out you know these dancers are there how how do you actually do, are you directing them how, how does that actually work in a show like this
5: uh i mean you know the answer is we didn't know <laughs> <laughs> there, there isn't, you know there isn't really a roadmap for a show like this and then you throw a pandemic on top of it and the limitations of how you can collaborate with other artists really sort of does i mean the reality is that like we the, the can this is this is this was the epitome of the constraint is going to have to breed the creativity um, because, you know, we're, we're, we're making a show that requires so much physicality in a period where you can't really rehearse in person very often. Um, and so our relationship with Buck and Boogs, luckily, is one where we, David and I say all the time that our ship runs on enthusiasm. <laughs> and so a lot of our, you know, a, a lot of our plan here was to, you know, come up with a moment where it felt like something could be communicated without language. A lot of times that's when David and I are writing and we realize that language is failing us and we need something else. And then going to Buck and Boogs who are brilliant movement artists and understand storytelling through the body. And we would say, look, we think there is this moment that that could communicate this. And we wondered if maybe it could, for example, in episode four, it could move through the house or it could get everything, you know, all the moving boxes from the, from the truck to, to uh, the front door and in through the house. And they, this is their world, this is their language. And so they would start to sort of craft a movement piece and then show it to us. And then we would give a little feedback and, you know, we'd build with the other dancers. And a lot of that was really us sort of, you know, kicking back this idea what does it mean to have these, um, these vignettes of movement throughout a television show, um, and it was really exciting to sort of figure out what that could possibly mean in a, in a medium that we've very rarely ever seen anything like this before.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, one of the surprises of the show is Helen Hunt is is in it. Um, and how did how did that come about? Because I don't associate her with like the Bay Area or the themes of the show, but she's amazing in it. Uh,
5: yeah, I mean. Helen was the big supporter of the movie, so much so that she tweeted about it. Um, She happened to tweet about it on a day where I was watching Twister uh, for the first time in, I don't know, a decade. Um, So that felt very serendipitous. And in her version of the story, she slid in my DMs. In my version of the story, (laughs) I slid in her DMs. I don't know how this went. Um, But, you know, she was like, I'm a big fan of, of yours and David's in this movie. And I was like, I'm watching Twister um (laughs) uh and she was very like very straight up about we should know each other we're we're, you know i'm really i'm really interested in the kind of work that you're doing and uh, i think david was out of town at the time um but i mean it was like yeah cool let's get lunch uh tomorrow or the next day and i think you know within a few days we were hanging out and, and talking about um uh possible ways that we could collaborate or the kind of art that we were most excited about making, and that, that was the beginning of a few years of a friendship, and eventually it landed in us asking Helen to be a part of this show. That's so good.
2: I'm talking with David Diggs and Rafael Casal about their new TV series, Blindspotting, and we want to hear from you. Has a member of your family gone to prison, and have you seen that experience represented well on the screen? And if you've seen the show, did you see yourself represented in a new way? Give us a call now at 866 6786. That's 866 6786 We'll be back with more Forum after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with David Diggs and Rafael Casal about their new TV series Blind Spotting. Um, so a bunch of different times in the show, and in a bunch of different ways, you're both trying, and the show as a whole is kind of trying to reckon with with blackness and the, the varieties of the black experience in so many different ways. And we want to play a, a cut, um, which is kind of like a some of the of the characters of the show are essentially having like a round table talking about blackness um let's uh let's hear it yo little beige self cannot tell me or qualify
3: my blackness at all so what's up with that
2: well now
3: she's the same shade as me her grandmother is white. Does that make her any less black? Uh-huh. Does up. that make her no. less you're black? No, you're talking about Paul, people granny uh, like that.
1: Mama <laughs> is
6: old beige black. So old. that's that's hella old different.
1: Okay, beige. full stop. First of all,
3: not old. You know, it makes sense like 40 years ago. It would have been a little bit better, but Nancy still rose apart black. Mm. You 2018 light like skin, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? You like <laughs>
1: Doja cat. Oh, oh was, <laughs> How oh, old do you
0: got am? Wait, <laughs> hang on. Hey, hold on. Wait, 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 wait,
3: y'all. You think I look
2: right. like Doja Cat? <laughs> I mean, this scene is so interesting and so good. And um, I have uh I have a question for Rafael about it, which is you're in the writer's room, you're the showrunner, there's a round table about blackness. Do you just sort of back out of the room and you're like, all right. I'll, I'll see you later. You guys figure it out. Or what, what do
5: you do? No, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not. Um, no, there's this like parent there's this, there's this paranoia about talking about experiences that you live in close proximity to where people are like, so afraid (laughs) to be like, Oh, I can't have a comment on this. I grew up around a ton of different communities. You have an opinion, you have observations, you know, it just like, it, it, it has to be, a, it's a group conversation. And so everyone is sort of in a safe space, you know, jumping in and saying, well, I've heard this opinion before, or this needs to be said, or, you know, well, what about this perspective on this? And we're having sort of a big collaborative, this is like, this would come up with the movie all the time, people mm-hmm. would be like, oh, well, of course, David wrote <laughs> all of his lines and you wrote all of your lines because writers should only write their, only their character's <laughs> perspective. Like what novels did you read growing up? Like there would only be one character if you only wrote your own perspective. But I think we are like always trying to sort of foster an environment where, where we can have sort of these really transparent conversations about what we've heard and what we've seen come up and what feels like it's at the cutting edge of, of the dialogue. <laughs> Um, and then, how does that turn into a you know what feels like a really organic conversation in the room? Um, and that comes with you know concerns about where every every writer's blind spots are. Um, but I think that's still I think that still affords a lot of space to go well, what about this or what about this, and bring it to the room and see what happens.
3: I think the um, the great thing, the thing I love about that scene is that um, it was it it it. it, it allowed us an opportunity to keep the conversation very complicated to not try Mm -hmm. to give any answers. Mm -hmm. Um, and because there, we, we allowed each character to have a different perspective. It, allowed for so much, you know, oftentimes in a writer's room, like you come up with a 1000 things, and then maybe one thing is what it's about. This allowed for so many of the perspectives that that everybody brought to the table to end up in the show and in conflict with each other. And that feels way more grounded to me, it feels way more like the versions of those conversations that I've had in my life. And then, the interesting thing was getting on set and shooting that scene was kind of a trip because there are a lot of things in the scene that are triggering to people. And like some of the actors would get into it. And part of the, part of the flow of that day was being like, Hey, let's remember that for these characters, this isn't the first time that they've had this discussion or discussions like this. And they love each other already. We're starting from a, from a place of, of love and care and respect. And so um, We can allow ourselves to enjoy the conversation. We can allow ourselves to have fun clowning each other and calling each other out and get angry and all of that. And it was a really kind of a beautiful, interesting experience that I hadn't I had never seen on a set before.
2: Yeah. Do I guess one question I one question I had about it was, are you were you worried at all about bringing what feels like kind of an in-group conversation to television? You know, because you know that it's going to be all kinds of people um, are going to see that conversation, not only pe- you know, people who've never been exposed to that conversation before. And um, like, do you do you worry about that? Or do you think like it's good for it's good for white people in Duluth to like hear
5: that? I don't, I don't know that this is the first time that conversation has been on television at all. I, I think that the only sort of thing that we try to do different was to not have it resolved with a bow on it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we just really wanted to present a conversation that didn't have a clear, that didn't have a clear winner or a clear like moral high ground that was coming from the writers of the thing who wanted to make a point. We really just wanted to portray a conversation sort of in the, in the middle of where it was.
3: I think the hope is that the, this is one specific conversation between a very specific group of people, right, that, that we're showing off for the world and uh, and I and I hope in the in its complexity we realize that like the it it is it is specific that you can't I mean a big part of the thing we're doing in that episode right is, um, trying to poke holes in in the idea of of a black monolith, and so um, and so I think it's the diversity of perspectives that is important in that discussion, and uh, the one and what I hope you know leaves with people is that like. These discussions do happen, and there are safe spaces for Black people to talk about being Black with other Black people. And not all of those conversations are going to sound the same. Only this one with these characters is going
2: to ever sound like this. Yeah, yeah. It does that just so beautifully. Um, I want to talk about Helen Hunt's um, sort of role as her character, Rainey. uh, Rainey's um, role in the show. And I want to just play a cut first so people can kind of hear a little bit of Rainey.
1: Nancy keeps trying to sell me kente cloth, and I keep saying, Nancy, I can't wear those. And she says, you don't support black business. And I say, for sake, Nancy, and I buy three scarves. Do You want to talk about your visit?
6: Oh, I was in line at 6.30 this morning to make sure I was through security by 7.15 so there would be no way that we would miss our 7.30 appointment and then they pushed it. So then I waited until 9 and then they pushed it again until 11 and then again until 3 p.m. and then they told me that visitation was done. I
0: don't know, maybe I'll find another butt phone and, and call me tonight. When you guys say
1: butt phone, do you mean, you know what? I'm just going to be happy not being clear on what that is.
2: I mean this is a, a, another scene in which there's these incredibly heavy elements, you know, just interaction uh with the carceral state. Um there's there's race and it's also just like funny and human and there's a specific version uh of of whiteness that's allowed to sort of live in in that space as well. Um can you, can you tell me a little bit more about like writing Rainy and, and creating um that character? Like who you knew people like this growing up in the bay?
5: I knew you mean our moms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a there is like a white Bay Area hippie, like extremely liberal left alternative mother that I think particularly in our generation and, and the following generation had a lot of, right, the sort of this post-60s radical yeah. um, Bay Area lineage that gets sort of passed down and that many of us are very different from our parents in, in that way because we grew up sort of in the um, you know, in, in the aftermath of that. Um, so, I mean, we, we had our ideas of who Rainey was, but, you know, really we got to give a lot of credit to Helen because okay. Helen came in and was like you know was was red rainy and said I I get kind of who she's trying to be but clearly you don't have anyone in my age bracket in your writer's room (laughs) 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 so I have some notes you know and, and uh and she gave us notes on multiple drafts of the script three or four drafts before um she ever signed on to the project just so we could dial in the voice of who Rainy was, and she really brought in a perspective that I think a lot of writers' rooms sort of suffer from this, where you have this massive age range in characters, but not necessarily a huge age range in the writers' room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we, we got very lucky that Helen is also a director and a writer. Um, and we were very sort of open about the idea that she could contribute in any way that she wanted to, to sort of the motivations of Rainy's character in her motherhood, in her parenting, um, in sort of the, the place that she is in her life. Um, and so I know Helen also had people in her life that she was basing Rainey on that are from people that are from the Bay area that she's very close to. And then we sat her down with a few people in our lives. So she could sort of study their speech pattern and ask questions about their motivations for how they navigate um, the East Bay and, and, uh, and their, their place within it. Mm-hmm. So good.
2: Uh, we're talking with David Diggs and Rafael Casal about their new TV series Blindspotting. And, and we want to hear from you. Has a member of your family gone to prison? And have you seen that experience represented well on the screen? And if you've seen the show, do you see yourself or your community represented in a new way? Uh, Get in touch on Twitter, on Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to talk a little bit about the Bay Area creative scene. you you both have have had to leave the bay in order to sort of make your way in your careers um what what's really missing from here that would allow people like yourself to kind of come back and and make stuff at home
3: uh industry i i mean you know it's it is it's it is financial more than anything i think um there's um it's tough to make a living as an artist there, Um, but but there is so much art being produced there. And I do credit like the art scene there for the kind of artist that I am. Um, It was really interesting when I, you know, Rafa can attest to this a little bit too, like, there I was doing Hamilton and like was getting all kinds of attention for things that were so table stakes for the way I grew up making art you know but there's a thing about when an artist from the Bay Area walks into a room and is given an opportunity to be just be that um that like people don't are, there's something. Like, what are you thinking? Like,
2: what's a what's a table stakes stuff that you feel like Bay Area people have that some other
3: stuff? for example, like having the the fastest rap in the history of Broadway isn't a valid award, right? Because there are no raps in the history of Broadway, really. <laughs> but <laughs> and that is also a relatively slow rap for any rapper who grew up in the Bay. Like, so you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We we forced ourselves to speed train because everybody there is good at it right and so uh and so th- things like that things like um like being a kind of multi-hyphenate performer who's like very comfortable changing up the meter of a song in the middle of a song or like breaking a fourth wall or something It's like fourth wall breaking stuff is like just part of basic theater etiquette in the bay area right (laughs) um so like i think there's there are things that we take as table stakes that are still new to a lot of the rest of the world and that's what's really compelling to us about trying to figure out a way to bring a little more industry and more attention to the bay because i think there's we shouldn't always have to leave Um, also the bay is crazy expensive to live in that's also also true let's also acknowledge that
2: (laughs) i mean there is this i mean that that very inequality and crazy extreme wealth is one of the things that kind of lends a surreal cast to this place right um which you guys really drive at in this show like i i feel like even more so than when you go into spoken word there's this there's these tiny little surreal moments, and one of them occurs like in the in the hotel. Ashley's been approached by this like just dirt bag trying to try and sleep with him, um, and the dancers are dressed in like the bellhop outfits. And there's just like the world kind of warps in this crazy way, and the dancers' bodies, you know, reflect this kind of. Oh my god, like did that really just happen? Like is this this racist terrible class moment just occurred and the whole world is like warped and then you like snap back to it and you're like, "Okay, back to work." Um those those moments were those all written in or did you as you were working with the 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 dancers and the actors just go like, "Actually, that was so racist. We got to have a moment like that in here." Uh
5: um, it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um There are are moments where we specifically knew that there would be choreography and that we would sort of, we would use movement to articulate a shift in perspective for Ashley. I mean, the chorus really appears when the the ramifications of the prison industrial complex are reaching out beyond sort of the walls of the prison and affecting one of our characters' Mm -hmm. lives. and, uh, and that is really the first day that, that Ashley is really reconciling with how much her life has just changed and how much her perspective has changed on everything that's happening to her that day. Um, I, I'm sure that was John and Buck's idea in that moment. I'm sure it was.
3: I think uh, uh, in the script it was like... A, a dance like or something <laughs> like the, there was a sentence that said a dance happens yeah <laughs> a
5: dance happens that represents this you know and they yeah. turn it into this sort of like melting moment which we then paired with miles reappearing oh, um, so and just, having yeah. some having some commentary on it and yeah I, you know I think what's crazy about that moment is that was the second day of shooting yeah. we were still figuring out like what does this look like um, how that how does the camera move during this like how do we reveal it and then tuck it back away in a way that's gonna feel um, you know intuitive for an audience? And uh, yeah, yeah,
2: oh man. Um, I want to play uh, one other cut. Um, and, and the reason is, I feel like one of the things that's um, really beautiful about this show, particularly the the secondary characters, are all allowed to have, these incredible like inner lives um so let's play uh this uh cut here where we've got uh, janelle and earl talking
6: another match i
1: swear this town is such a it's like somebody took a story about oakland and tried to make it from memory like some stuff is just way off
3: why'd you come back then you was gone for five years you must have had a whole other life
1: it wasn't supposed to be five years it just happened
3: I'm gonna be out faster than my brother was after his probation. I'm trying to hit Europe or some. Marry some sexy ass, wee wee ass
2: French Mediterranean woman. Pop out a kid. Work on a fishing boat or something. I don't know. You ain't never won nothing like that. I mean, I love this scene so much, uh, and I and I feel like it's a key moment in the series. It's
5: fascinating what you think are curse words. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: yeah, it's true. Uh, the, I, I, yeah, I love that scene too. I love that scene because I think there's great writing in it and really great acting. Oh, it. so yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, um, Candace, uh, Nicholas Littman and Benjamin Earl Turner are really uh, putting on a clinic in that scene. I think it's it's really wonderful. Uh, I also particularly love that line about uh, making Oakland from memory. Did you write that? I feel like that's a you line.
5: What... This feels like a me-ass line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's also a comment on us. I mean, that's also- uh, Yeah, saying, that I mean, that's really the point. It's like, it is both like a comment on how the city feels when you revisit it and being unsure if your memory is betraying you or if, or if the city has changed so drastically. Like, we have this weird sort of bird's eye view on the place that we grew up um and, and dropping back into the ground floor view is always so jarring mm-hmm. that yeah we sort of like wanted to talk about what it feels like to be in the bay now and be like this feels like someone is like satirizing the place that we grew up and we're there and then also wanted to sort of like roast ourselves being out being outside of it now and writing back about home as being like you know we are nostalgic for a thing that there isn't, there's also a generation of of kids now that don't even have that memory. Like they've only existed in the transition. Yeah. Um, And so there is this, like, you leave for five years and come back. That's the experience that we know the most about. It's like leaving and popping back in to see our family and friends and just being like, where did this whole street go? Where, (laughs) Where are these three venues that we went to all the time? There was this crazy thing in the paper the other day that was like, I tweeted about it. It was like, oh, the Uptown is under new management and locals <laughs> are devastated. And I was like, what locals? <laughs> the up- the uptown used to be the black box and then it became the Uptown. Right. And locals went, what the hell is the up- <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is Uptown downtown Oakland? <laughs> yeah. Now there's, a, now there's a generation of gentrifying locals who are mad at the new gentrifiers <laughs> for changing their gentrifying ass bar. <laughs>
2: We're talking with David Diggs and Rafael Casal about their new TV series, Blind Spotting. Give us a call now, 866 733 6786, if you've got questions for them. We've had some trouble with the phones, but they're back up. 866 733 6786. We'll be back with more forum after the break.
6: We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go.
2: Here's what's coming up in our next hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Just in the past few months, foreign hacking groups have launched major ransomware attacks against U.S. private companies, including software provider Casia, meat processing company JBS and Colonial Pipeline. A recent Washington Post analysis found that ransomware attacks more than doubled from 2019 to 2020 in the U.S. We'll look at how and why these attacks occur and the national security threat they pose. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit slash forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and I'm talking with David Diggs and Rafael Casal about their new TV series, Blind Spotting, which is on stars. Um, I, w- I want to talk about code switching a little bit because I think there's sort of like the basic idea of code switching. You know, like uh, well, hello. You know, I feel like I do it coming out of the break, sort of. But there's, you know, there's these uh, these voices that we yeah. put on. Um, the NPR code switches. Yeah, that's, M- that's, yeah. A, that's a real that's thing. Real <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, man, just... and and one of the funny things about it is in this show, you kind of go back and forth. There's an amazing scene which I actually tried to get a cut from, but I wasn't sure that like. People would get what was going on. There's like kind of um, Trish who started trying to start a uh, a co-op strip club, um, which is uh, also an amazing storyline in of itself. Goes into the bank to try and get a loan, and there's uh, a black bank officer, and so they kind of drop into the slang. And then at the end, basically, you know, he's been with her all along, uh, and then he's like, "No." So, h- how did you? Think about that—the um, kind of many layers of code switching that people are doing in this show. You know, between the West and the East, and Oakland, and other things. You know, black and white. It's it's a, it's fascinating and, and more layered, I think, than we normally give code switching credit for.
5: I think we talk about <clears throat> we talk about Bay Area mouthpiece a lot, and what does it mean to um, to be able to operate in a bunch of different circles. I think when we think of code switching in terms of like a national dialogue, I really do think about like the way in which people have to protect themselves in predominantly white spaces and not sort of the, this broader idea of like, what does it mean to be in survival mode constantly and have a, you know, we, we you could talk about Trisha's code switching also with her own mother mm-hmm. uh, and like what is her voice with her mom versus what is her voice with her friends in the same scene. And they're watching her code switch. It's not even like she's hiding it. I mean, Miles code switches in front of Ashley in the second scene of the first episode. He has like a way that he talks to his partner and a way that he talks to a security guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think watching people navigate, you know, how they, how, they, um, um, how they interface with the world based on who they're across from is something that because the Bay has so many different communities sort of overlapping constantly, you sort of, you sort of don't even notice the small variations of people's switches when they get around certain people, because I think there's a general understanding that like, this is the way in which you navigate like a massive sort of cross-cultural intersection in, in, in real time.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I, and I, it's just interesting to see it represented in, in all of its
5: like beautiful ornate mm-hmm. detail, you know? Yeah. We also like, don't make a thing about it. Like, we, you yeah. know, there isn't really a, there isn't really a moment where we're like, Hey, you change the way you talk. It's like, we, I think we're sort of of the, of the assumption that like, of course I you do that yeah. all the time. Yeah. I do it all. I'm doing it with you right now. I don't really talk like this,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: especially if I've had uh, a little bit of alcohol. <laughs> uh,
3: but, and that scene, I think the real function of that scene is to like, you know, demonstrate the, the inherent beauty of, of the, of the code switch and of like how, you know, how, how, how much virtuosity there is in like two mm-hmm. people who speak this same version of a same, of a, of a same language and how much improvisation there is, you know, Lance, uh, who plays Cuddy? Uh, you know the great thing about him is that he's from there for real, and he can he can improvise in that world too, which is so he can improvise in all that slang. That uh, Uncle Sam don't even know the due date is one of my favorite lines. I'm pretty sure he came up with <laughs> definitely improvised that. There was
5: the, <laughs> there's a the thing I always think about in terms of people who are bilingual, and like you, if you walk up to somebody and you know they speak another language as their first language, you just switch over to that if you speak it. I think the bear is the same way. Like five. If I know that you have access to all that vocabulary that like Trish and, and Cuddy, for example, like, you know, showcased in that scene, it's better language to articulate what you want to say, like the shorthand works better. So the minute you have, you know, somebody has access to a vocabulary that you grew up speaking, I think that's what's beautiful about it is Trish is like, oh, you're like, what shit? You, you're from here, you know, all right, let me explain this in a way that like you'll understand sort of the root mm-hmm. of what I'm trying to navigate. Um, and then they have to switch back to like, no, this is a bank bank, Like we have to talk in, in right. sort of corporate this bank, is bank English. Yes. Yeah, we going you... to talk bank English. Right.
2: Right. We may be two black people in here, but it's a primarily white institution. Yeah.
5: Um, really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> complicated, complicated. Right.
2: Um, oh. The, the sort of deepest kind of heaviest storyline in, in this show, and it is it is very funny, but there, there's a lot of heaviness in the show. Um, and we um, <clears> have <throat> got a comment or Coco writes, um, I'm African-American and both of my brothers spent time in jail and prison. And what I don't see on television is the mental effects that prison has on a person. Both of my brothers suffer from anxiety and PTSD. They're never treated for it. Transitioning from prison to society requires an investment in each person leaving prison far beyond what exists today. Thus the high recidivism rate. Um, And I'll put uh, the question I would put to you is this show really centers the people who the, the effects of the prison industrial complex on the people outside um, prison in having to provide that support for people who are on the inside. There's this, um,
5: there's this tweet that I saw this morning that was so perfect. I had to repost it and it goes um, and it's by at, S-M-E-T, E-S-M-I-E-T-E. Um, we're collectively joking about a year of quarantine ruining our social skills and ability to function in the regular world, but we just can't understand how people come out of prison after five or 10 or 20 years maladapted or how incarceration only continues cycles of harm. And I think like there, what we're trying to do with the show as much as possible is show sort of how that system Um, collectively impacts not only that not only that person or like this person is asking their their direct family members um, but how those effects just last and last and last after after incarceration is quote unquote over and not only like systemically how it's holding on to you in every possible way and keeping you a convicted felon and limiting your ability to 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 bounce back and have a career or have any real support around your mental health after you've been through a really like pretending that that there's no reason to pretend that prison is not like a a traumatic an extremely traumatic terrifying experience in herself in, in itself and so in a lot of ways you know earl in our show is a bit of the representation of that in the same way that colin was in the movie and that like and that's really, I think, why, and I don't know, Diggs, you want to jump in and talk about this more, but, like, this is a big reason that we put Earl on this extension cord, where he's always mm-hmm. plugged in all the time, is to really, and and by the way, and Diggs should tell the, the full version of the story, but, like, we didn't make this up. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, h- him being plugged into the wall all the time is both symbolic, but it's also, like, a thing that we really witnessed happening.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's a that's based on a person who's very close to me, and uh, and who was so, was, was two things that we imbued in Earl. One, so... Terrified of being sent back for a technicality and also smart enough to know that people get sent back for technicalities all the time.
2: Mm-hmm. Um
3: and and has and is has interacted with the system enough to realize that the system is actually a, a really basic, dumb system designed to pull people back because there's profit in that. And so that is the it's like a shark. That's the only thing it can do. Um and so um that but yeah like it is i find that extension cord hilarious and it and it was when when we were witnessing it and also so so sad um because it's 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 super real and that's definitely not made up like it's a real story we made the extension cord a little longer yeah right.
2: That's, yeah yeah that's the but height when you, you needed for art but, but yeah. not that <laughs> not much not longer,
3: long, longer. longer. <laughs> like, like it, it did go all the way from the backyard to the front door like to the to the through the front the yard street. yeah i think
5: yeah, yeah. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we maybe added going to the corner yeah <laughs> But it definitely went all the way to the curb. Yeah.
2: Wow, Earl is really a beautiful character. I'm so I'm so happy to see Earl on television, like really, and as an actor, and it just the the kind of brilliance, the kind of casual brilliance, you know, of of Earl is just so so great to see on on the screen. Um,
5: Benjamin Earl Turner. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, uh, is he, He's not actually an actor, right? I mean, by trade, he's like well, a musician. He is. He is.
5: Yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely.
3: Yeah. No, yeah. Actor, <laughs> no, we've we've done a lot of plays together, and and oh. uh, but he he's a he's a rapper. For, I don't know, like all of us, rapper first, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs>
5: but uh, rapper, yeah. rapper, poet, now screenwriter and television actor. Yes, yes. Yeah, there it is.
2: <laughs> the hyphens. Um, let's bring in a call, Perrin from
4: Oakland,
2: born and raised in Oakland.
4: Hey, what's up, guys? Um, hey, hey. I just wanted to tell a quick story and then ask you a quick question. You know, the first day uh, after I saw the movie, um, what was that, three years ago, I was on my way to work, and I was sitting um, at a red light in Adeline just waiting for, like, ten minutes, and I was like, man how relevant that was to the movie, and then, like, a commander moving truck pulled up, and I just thought it was super awesome how relevant your guys' stories are and kind of get brought into, you know, our experiences living here in the city. Um, and then my quick question is, yeah, I lived in Oregon for nine years. I went there for college and then stayed after a little while, and, if, you know, more recently come back, been back for three years. And, you know, one thing I took with me living in another place was, like, being super proud about being here. You know, you have it on your ID. You're, you're born and raised here. And, you know, people are like, where are you from? You're from Oakland. And everyone's like, man, that's so cool or whatever. And like, they really have no knowledge of the city of Oakland. And so I guess my question for you guys is, you know, as you've you know moved on in, in your life to other places, how have you brought uh, your experience in the city of Oakland and how is that, you know, how have you interacted with people when you kind of communicate, you know, where you're from and what you're all about?
5: I like to tell this story about David going to college. <laughs> 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 David. You know, in high school, like wore a lot of pajama pants and berets. And shit. He, he, he <laughs> Wait, got pajama pants everyone. and
2: berets? Those yeah, are two yeah, different no, categories
5: on, of things. Hold on, hold on, no. It, uh, he looked on. dope. I'm not trying to <laughs> hate him. He looked tight. But
3: <laughs> We don't have to lie. it you know, <laughs> was a
5: weird kid. It was, it, was it was an interesting vibe. It was very unique. And he rocked with everybody. And Diggs went to, um, went to Brown, uh, uh, you know, on the East Coast. And I was like doing deaf poetry and it opened up this recording studio. When David came back, a friend brought him through and was like, you need to, you, you know, you need to mess with David because he's, um, he's a rapper and, and I think you'll really dig his stuff. And when David came through, David was like, bait out, head to toe, like, big bay t-shirt, you know, you know, baggy jeans, like kicks that matched a tie around his neck with a bandana in the front. And I was like, oh, snap, like, you know, and I think how we've always talked about it is like when you leave, you know, and I, I lived in the Midwest for a couple of years, when you leave, man, like your Bay pride, you double and triple down on that yeah. Um, There's this thing that w- the, the, the bro was just talking about, about like leaving and coming back and looking back on it. You do suddenly realize that like, while you've lived in the nuance of the Bay for your whole life, nobody knows anything about it. And in, in making the show, this is the thing that like, we have to come back to all the time is like, we have to get people in France and Brazil and like all over the world to understand the essence of what it means to be from the Bay and grow up there. And so we're both juggling like hyper specificity for the local audience, But the, the mounting, you know, audience that we have to satisfy is this global, you know, star sounds like somewhat like 30 million subscribers or something. (laughs) We have to satisfy this massive audience and then also get it right for, for local folks. And I think that's been the trip is like, what are the, what are the precious things we have to get in that are hyper-specific? And then what are the sort of feelings and essences of the place that we have to communicate and translate across continent and across languages?
3: Yeah. And what are you trying to communicate? You know, what? Is, what's the what's the goal? Like, you know, do I want people to be in love with this place or scared of this place or both? You know, like there are is a good there are good reasons for the whole gamut of of ways you can feel about about the bay, and so it, it is a little bit of a trip. Starting to think of what you're doing, because this is different from our ex- experience making the film, which was just like, "Oh, somebody's going to let us make something, let's make it." Uh, making this, there's a lot more awareness of that. Like, there's a, there's, we're pushing this out into the world, and people might actually see it. And so, like, the representation matters, uh, and we and we do think a lot about it.
5: Yeah, yeah. You know what? what we it- I will say though, just just to jump on the back yeah, yeah, yeah. of that, like, we also did say really clearly when we started that we weren't trying to try to represent all of the Bay. Right. Like we really were like, yo, we need to tell one small story really, mm-hmm. really well, mm-hmm. because of like it's the same reason the movie is not called like Oakland Town, because <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs>
5: <laughs> we can't. Like, there, there's no there's no small way to tell that big of a story. There's no way. And so, really, all we could do was like, all right, what's a story that we feel like we could tell with the writers that we know and love, that we think we could we could then bring in sort of the the ways in which aspects of the city and the, and the area, the Bay Area, like can bleed into this story in ways that are intuitive and 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 but can be tangible without being like, yeah, we're gonna ha- we're gonna represent this area and this experience and this one and this one and like trying to have everything sort of. Mm-hmm thrown in the pot and hoping it just comes out to quote unquote representation like it's just it doesn't really work that way yeah I was, I was also kind of greedy for us as storytellers to be like we got this like, <laughs> Yeah, you know we we're like we're gonna tell this one well and then hopefully this one allows someone else to go oh you know what story they didn't tell this one I'm gonna do that one and someone else being like you know which one they didn't tell this one I'm gonna do that one yeah we'll build it out
2: I want to I want to ask you uh, a question about the the Oakland's that are represented in not But first, I want to play uh, a cut of you doing some poetry, Rafa.
5: Rafael can't help but count the degrees of manipulation here that he's felt. Let me get this straight, he thinks to himself. Are they selling a drink to white America by trying to show that it's authentically Mexican, so that Mexican folks will drink and validate it, so that white folks will drink and thinking it makes them less white, so they can attract exotic Mexican women? <laughs> who in the commercial? Who in the commercial are- by Spaniards and in doing so, pressuring Mexican women to look more European. Than
2: American men. I mean, this is relevant to me. I had a, you know, Mexican dad. My mom's from Massachusetts. And how do you think about your identity, Rafael?
5: Whoa, bro.
6: <laughs> 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 I, w- I went digging
2: deep, I was in the crate.
3: Yeah. You'll play basically to Raphael, and then be like, How do you think about your identity? That's the cool to You're
5: going to pull up a hole from when, when I'm 19 and then be like, How do you think about my identity? Bro, I think about my identity constantly. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: that was amazing.
5: I, mean, I, haven't even heard, I haven't heard that poem in so long. <laughs> I
2: mean, there's some beautiful things about that cut, though, right? The people that—that that is the world that you came up in, right? You
5: speak, yeah, and, and I think I think what's amazing about the clip that you just pulled is right now in this country there is a number of conversations about colorism in the Hispanic Latin American community yeah. and really just the Latin community in general. And I think that was a that was that is a section of a poem that tries to point at how little corporations know about the many different communities within that sort of quote-unquote blanket community of Latinidad, which is a construct that a lot of people are deconstructing right now. Um, And so that's about sort of companies trying to target an audience that is not one audience or one experience, but is a massive multitude of so many different experiences and I think in that moment I'm just going like, so you think it's just A to B, <laughs> you know? You think it's just this really simple, like, oh, I'm going to market it to this community by getting, you know, this ideal for them so they can get, you know.
2: I mean, it's a it's a good point. I feel like you have One of the reasons why I, I wanted to play it for you was I, I just feel like you know, there's a. I think some older people think that like what we would have called woke in the old days. I don't know what we would call that now. Uh, given that that term has been, you know, changed so much. Like, there's some really necessary analysis that goes into that and that, you know, a lot of these young poets were doing when you were 19. Uh,
3: yeah, well, and still are. I mean, I think the uh, the amazing thing about that poem is that that was 15 years ago and we're literally having the same conversation exactly. right now, you know, I mean, like... That's... We're having it for,
5: like, the first time now. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, like, uh, yeah. In they're just... the public discourse. Right. Um, there was a, that was a very like niche conversation at the time that only a sect of that audience really understood, and that audience is actually a bunch of fourteen year olds in that clip. That's out brave new voices where I'm like nineteen or twenty. I've just aged out of the competition, and they brought me back to perform. Um, but I'm you know I'm super I'm super young, and I do think like there's there is this thing this other thing that comes up a lot. I don't know I don't know that we ever directly addressed it in the show though. It is like fondly present in the show, which is like. We are the kids of, of, like, hippie, hyper-political parents. And so there is both this, like, constant sense of awareness um, with all of the characters as they're walking through, you know, as they're walking through the world. Yeah.
2: We have been talking with Davi Diggs and Rafael Casal about their new TV series, Blindspotting. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thank you. For Thanks for having time. us. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stay tuned for more Forum with Mina Kim.